Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, suicide, and domestic violence that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. In the world of medicine, truth is everything. A patient can't lie about their symptoms, a doctor can't fabricate a diagnosis, and nurses can't falsify treatment. Along with an oath to do no harm, a commitment to telling the truth is necessary for anyone working in the field of medicine. If there was a nurse who didn't care about the truth, who told blatant lies at every opportunity, who pathologically falsified and manipulated everything around them, would you believe that they could take care of you? Would you trust them to keep you alive? This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to offer some medical insight into our story of Kristen Gilbert, a nurse who knew how to steal the hearts of her patients. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Kristen Gilbert, a nurse in Massachusetts who killed patients by injecting them with overdoses of various drugs. Today, we'll cover how Kristen Gilbert lied and manipulated her way through life. Despite a dangerous pattern of instability in her personal relationships, she became a nurse. Then, in the mid-1990s, she unleashed her manipulation and instability on her vulnerable patients. Next time, we'll learn how her killings were eventually discovered and how she was ultimately taken down. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. 
Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Early on the morning of December 8th, 1995, 35-year-old Henry Hudon was admitted to the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Northampton, Massachusetts. He was suffering from flu-like symptoms, but in an attempt to attain a hospital bed, Hudon told them he had taken too many of his pills and was suffering from an overdose. Hudon was a regular at the hospital, an Air Force veteran who was diagnosed with schizophrenia following a head injury he sustained while breaking up a bar fight as a young man. The nurses, skeptical that Hudon had taken any pills, gave Hudon a bed anyway and monitored his vitals. Later in the afternoon, Hudon's vitals were stable and he seemed to be improving. At five o'clock, there was a shift change at the hospital and a new nurse, Kristen Gilbert, took over Hudon's care. Just before 6 p.m., Hudon's condition suddenly and inexplicably worsened. His heart rate and blood pressure spiked. Within a matter of minutes, he was in a state of cardiac arrest. Kristen called in the doctors who successfully resuscitated Hudon. 45 minutes later, it happened again. So, like she had earlier, Kristen called in the doctors after Hudon went into cardiac arrest and they saved Hudon's life once more. About an hour later, it happened a third time. The fourth time Kristen called in the doctors, they couldn't save him. Despite having no serious health conditions when he entered the hospital, Henry Hudon had died. The case flummoxed the hospital. Nothing about Hudon's death made any sense to any of the doctors and nurses on staff. Except for one. Kristen Gilbert, Hudon's primary nurse, knew exactly what had happened. She had killed him. Before she became a killer, Kristen Gilbert, born Kristen Heather Strickland, was raised in the small town of Fall River, Massachusetts, a place already steeped in dark lore. Fall River is best known for being the hometown of Lizzie Borden, who allegedly killed her father and stepmother with a hatchet in 1892. The morbid story of Lizzie Borden still hung over the town of Fall River in the 1970s, and young Kristen loved it. When her family moved away from Fall River in her teenage years, Kristen remained obsessed with her hometown and its dark past. Her love of Fall River and the Borden story went beyond mere homesickness or morbid fascination. She began telling people that she was, in fact, a blood relative of Lizzie Borden. Of course, 
Kristen wasn't related to Lizzie Borden at all. She had no murderous lineage, but her insistence on the claim revealed something even darker, hidden inside her psyche. Kristen Gilbert exhibited traits of a pathological liar. She lied about everything, about her family's history, about her friends, about her activities after school. Her friends soon learned that she had a tendency to make up things on the spot. Her parents became concerned when they heard that Kristen was spreading stories claiming her mother was a violent drunk. But her lying was easy to ignore when Kristen was excelling at other aspects of her life. She was a popular, intelligent student at the top of her class. Behind closed doors, however, there were warning signs about her psyche, even beyond the habitual lying. To the boy she dated, she could be vindictive, manipulative, unstable, abusive, and occasionally physically violent. In particular, Kristen Gilbert did not take breakups well. She reportedly never ended a relationship herself, and if any boy dared to dump her, she'd make sure they felt her anger. According to the accounts of her past boyfriends, she made threatening phone calls to exes, harassed them at school, damaged or sabotaged their cars, made false accusations, and even physically attacked them. This was seemingly normal behavior for Kristen Gilbert, who possessed many tools in her arsenal of manipulation. In 1984, Kristen Gilbert graduated high school early at the age of 16. The following year, she enrolled at nearby Bridgewater State College to study pre-med with plans of becoming a nurse. Her behavior didn't change as she left home for the first time. It only grew more intense. After one breakup, she sabotaged an ex-boyfriend's test by stealing it from the professor's desk and burning it. After one particularly rough split, Kristen left her ex-boyfriend a note claiming she was going to kill herself. When the concerned boy arrived at her house, he discovered it was just another lie. This time, the ex-boyfriend alerted the college to Kristen's behavior, telling them that he believed she was mentally unstable. He also warned that he wouldn't be surprised if she hurt or even killed somebody. College officials took the allegations seriously and ordered Kristen to receive psychiatric treatment in order to continue her studies. But Kristen had no interest in facing professional scrutiny. Besides, she already had one foot out the door at Bridgewater State College, and this was just another reason to leave. In the summer of 1986, she met Glenn Gilbert, a boy two years her senior from a slightly less well-to-do background. The two swiftly entered into a serious relationship, giving Kristen a perfect reason to leave Bridgewater State College and their psychiatric mandates. She transferred to a college closer to her new boyfriend, one that supposedly had no knowledge of her past problems. To further her studies, Kristen began working as a home health aide, making house calls to care for patients in the area. In August of 1987, Kristen was assigned to care for a deaf, 
mute, and developmentally disabled boy living with a foster family. Kristen and another aide arrived at the foster family's home one night in August 1987 for her first visit. While the other aide went to take care of another child in the house, Kristen faced the task of bathing the boy. Afterwards, she tucked him into bed. Then she and the other aide reconvened and left the house. When the foster parents checked on the boy, they discovered that most of his skin had been badly scalded. The foster parents were shocked. The bathtub had been specifically designed to prevent the water from becoming too hot. The only way for the water to reach scalding temperatures was for someone to manually unlock the faucet. When the parents checked the bathtub, they found that the faucet worked as intended. They came to a disturbing realization. Their new homemade must have unlocked the faucet, made the water as hot as possible, then relocked it to cover her tracks. There was no other possibility. The new nurse had purposefully scolded their foster son. Hot water can be very dangerous and can be life-threatening if it burns through multiple layers of skin. We have three layers of skin, the outermost being the epidermis, then the dermis, and below that, the hypodermis or subcutaneous tissue. First, second, and third degree burns correspond to each layer of skin, where third degree burns represent damage to the third layer of skin, the hypodermis. Third degree burns can be fatal because they can cause shifts in fluid and electrolytes and can lead to deadly infections. They can also send someone into shock, causing a dramatic cortisol output, which can result in heart attack, stroke, and hypertensive emergencies. Aside from being lethal, scalding injuries can lead to severe pain and lifelong scarring. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility that Kristen was unaware that she was actually hurting this young boy. Because he was developmentally disabled, he may have had sensory, mobility, or cognitive impairments that made him less responsive to the overly hot water. However, this is very unlikely because prolonged bathing in scalding water is very painful, and no matter how disabled he was, he probably would have shown signs of severe discomfort at some point. She also would have had to notice how the water was visibly burning his skin. The parents immediately called the Visiting Nurses Association of Franklin County and demanded that they never send Kristen Gilbert back into their home. They believed that this young nurse was a clear danger and they were more right than they knew. Somehow, the Visiting Nurses Association appears to have allowed Kristen to continue working. There are no other known incidents during her time as a home health aide. With no consequences, Kristen continued her progress towards becoming a nurse and moved forward in her personal life. In January 1988, she married Glenn Gilbert, and later that year, she graduated from college. In March of 1989, Kristen began her professional career as a nurse at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Northampton. She was now ready to see patients full-time. 
coming up, Kristen Gilbert begins her career as a professional nurse, and her dark impulses grow even more deadly. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1989, 21-year-old Kristen Gilbert had everything in her life set up perfectly. She'd gotten married, graduated college, and become a registered nurse with a job at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Northampton, Massachusetts. Working mainly the night shift, Kristen was immediately popular among her fellow nurses. They appreciated the hard work and energy of their new co-worker, whose attention to detail and medical knowledge stood out even among veteran nurses. Kristen also gained further respect when she organized an annual gift drive for poor families. But underneath that idyllic exterior, there was a darkness inside Kristen Gilbert's psyche that was ready to spill out. In early 1990, 51-year-old Louis Trainer checked himself into the medical center Trainer was a regular visitor to the hospital who suffered from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. During one previous episode, he'd swallowed Drano in a suicide attempt, which damaged his throat severely. He now could only eat through a feeding tube. Trainer arrived at the hospital complaining of esophageal problems. Not long after being admitted, he began screaming that he wanted to be allowed to die. The attending nurses, familiar with Trainer, regarded this as a normal, if distracting, depressive episode. They tried to keep doing their work in spite of the loud screaming emanating from Trainer's hospital room. But Kristen Gilbert, assigned to be Trainer's primary care nurse, had other ideas. At some point in the night, Louis Trainer abruptly stopped screaming. The silence was noticeable, and another nurse went into Trainer's room to check on him. His heart had stopped beating. He was dead. Trainer had died from a supposed cardiac arrest, though his doctors hadn't seen signs of any urgent health problems that might cause this. 
Cardiac arrest is when the heart suddenly and completely stops functioning, and oxygenated blood is no longer able to be pumped to the rest of the body's vital organs. It's the result of an electrical or structural malfunction in the heart, and without immediate action, cardiac arrest causes death very quickly. The most common cause is an abnormal heart rhythm or an arrhythmia. Not all arrhythmias are dangerous, but some types can induce sudden cardiac arrest. One example here is a ventricular arrhythmia or ventricular tachycardia. The ventricles are the heart's muscles that enable it to pump blood, and if they contract and relax irregularly, it can be fatal. Cardiac arrest can also be caused by congenital heart defects, which are malformations in the heart's muscles, valves, or holes in the septum or the tissue that separates the right side from the left side of the heart. A heart attack, on the other hand, is something different. Heart attacks happen when one or more of the coronary arteries become blocked and oxygenated blood can't reach the heart's muscles, preventing the flow of blood throughout the body. The blockage is usually a dislodged fragment of plaque made up of cholesterol and fat that accumulates in the arteries over time. When the plaque fragment breaks off from the arterial wall, it clogs the artery and prevents blood flow traveling beyond that blockage. Atherosclerosis is a result of the narrowing of arteries over time due to plaque formation and is the leading cause of heart attacks. Circling back around, a heart attack can cause a cardiac arrest by creating abnormal electrical activity in the ventricles, like ventricular fibrillation, flutter, or tachycardia. In an otherwise healthy patient, like Lewis Trainer, a sudden and unexplained cardiac arrest would be uncommon. However, it wouldn't necessarily be shocking to the point of causing suspicion. Trainer's death did not raise major red flags for the hospital staff. As a one-time event, the nurses and doctors on staff could easily believe it was an anomalous death. However, the truth was that it was not a one-time event. Patients assigned to Kristen Gilbert were dying in large numbers. In fact, when a staff doctor went through the records for the year in late 1990, he discovered that Kristen was the primary nurse for a majority of all patient deaths during her shift. In 1990, Kristen had also called in 13 emergencies out of 18 total. While the doctor didn't sound the alarm, he did quietly request that none of his patients be assigned to Kristen Gilbert's care. That doctor wasn't the only one to notice an alarming trend. In late 1991, another hospital worker went through the data and discovered that Kristen wasn't just the primary nurse for the majority of night shift deaths. In the past two years, her shifts produced triple the deaths of any other shifts. Kristen herself had found and reported 22 of the deaths herself. The next unluckiest nurse had found only five. When the hospital employee took these numbers to a superior, they were reportedly told to ignore the strange coincidences unless they wanted to make a direct accusation. The employee declined. Murmuring about Kristen and her oddly high patient mortality rate began to spread among the staff of the hospital, becoming loud enough that other nurses eventually began talking openly about it. They nicknamed Kristen the Angel of Death 
and joked that she must have the worst luck of any nurse in the hospital. She loved it. Just like her long-lasting lie that she was related to Lizzie Borden, this new reputation gave her the mystique and attention that she craved. The strange deaths on Kristen Gilbert's watch didn't seem to affect her life outside the hospital. She and her husband had two children in the next five years, and Kristen embraced her new role as mother. Her husband, Glenn, had a well-paying and flexible job at an optical lens firm that allowed them to take care of the kids without need for a nanny. The Gilbert family seemed to have their lives figured out perfectly. But just like her job at the hospital, not all was well underneath that blissful exterior. Her marriage had its share of rocky moments. During one particularly vicious argument, Kristen grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen and chased her husband around the house. By 1995, a little over a year after their second child was born, the Gilberts' marriage began to fall apart. They argued constantly, and the threat of divorce cast a pall over the household. Kristen realized that her marriage was doomed. But just like in her high school and college relationships, she apparently refused to be the one who ended it. Instead, she would wait and plan her revenge. Slowly but surely, Kristen Gilbert allowed her vindictive and manipulative side to emerge. It seems she strategically began changing her life to hurt her husband as much as possible. She lost weight and began dressing provocatively when she left the house. In the fall of 1995, Kristen began a very flirtatious and very noticeable affair with a security guard at the hospital, a young Gulf War veteran named James Peralt. Peralt worked the same evening shifts as Kristen, and one of his duties was to rush in to assist whenever one of the nurses called in a code or sounded the alarm over a patient. Every time Kristen called in a code, Peralt was quickly at her side. Kristen already called in more codes than anyone else in the ward by double digits. After her affair with Peralt began, those numbers rose. Around the same time, Kristen Gilbert began regularly preparing home-cooked meals for her husband. Her strangely sudden interest in cooking was incongruous for several reasons, including their deteriorating marriage and the fact that the food tasted terrible. But Glenn, in an attempt to keep the peace, didn't complain. What Glenn didn't know was that his wife didn't care if the food tasted good. She was likely more interested in the special ingredients that she'd allegedly pilfered from the hospital medicine cabinet, nifedipine and captopril. 
Nifedipine is a calcium blocker medication used to treat high blood pressure by relaxing artery walls, making it easier for blood to travel through the vessels. Captopril is an ACE inhibitor, which we also use to treat hypertension. These drugs both accomplish the same goal to lower blood pressure, but they work through different mechanisms. Nifedipine is actually a drug that we don't use much anymore because it has a tendency to drop blood pressure too quickly and dramatically. If nifedipine and captopril were taken together, they would have a synergistic effect and the blood vessels would dilate more than they would with just one of the drugs. The combination would basically create a more intense response of lowering the blood pressure and heighten the likelihood of side effects. Some common side effects these medications share are dizziness and lightheadedness, labored breathing, chest tightness or pain, fatigue and weakness, nausea, vomiting, and a rapid pulse or irregular heartbeat. For these drugs to cause serious heart problems or death, someone would have to take a large enough dose to lower their systolic blood pressure to below 70. Systolic blood pressure is the force of blood pumping away from the heart through the aorta and into the arteries throughout the rest of the body. A normal systolic blood pressure is around 120, and a reading of 70 is considered too low and very dangerous. Extremely low blood pressure deprives the body of oxygen and disrupts its normal functioning, which can cause fatal heart and brain damage. These medications can definitely be very harmful if they're dosed incorrectly. It's not definitively clear that Kristen mixed these medications into her husband's food, but what is known is that other nurses saw them in Kristen's possession, and that soon after, her husband's health took an abrupt turn for the worse. On November 5th, 1995, Glenn Gilbert woke up feeling sick. He tried to power through it, heading to his office and working through his nausea and fatigue. By the time he returned home, his symptoms were intensifying quickly. Still, he tried to fight it off and went to bed. That night, Glenn's condition took a turn for the worse and he began vomiting. Worried something was seriously wrong, Glenn called his wife, who was working her shift at the hospital, and asked her to bring him to the emergency room. Kristen rushed home and brought her husband to the hospital. There, doctors discovered that Glenn was suffering from gastroenteritis and an irregular heartbeat. After testing his blood, they also found that his potassium and glucose levels were critically low. Bizarre symptoms for a young, healthy man. Hypokalemia, or low potassium levels, is a serious condition that can prevent the body from functioning. Potassium is an electrolyte that helps in muscle contraction and nerve functioning. It also helps maintain a regular heartbeat. Glenn's hypokalemia and his other symptoms seem to line up with the reactions to the blood pressure medications Kristen may have been feeding him. For starters, his gastroenteritis could have been caused by the drugs. When blood pressure drops severely, the body prioritizes its oxygenated blood and directs it to the vital organs like the brain, heart, kidneys, and lungs. In doing so, blood leaves the non-vital organs like the skin, muscles, and the gut. Without oxygen-rich blood in the gut, someone can experience ischemic stomach pain resulting in gastroenteritis, which can lead to nausea and vomiting. Glenn's vomiting then caused a drop in his potassium, which is one of the electrolytes you lose when you throw up. 
Low blood pressure also creates a cortisol or stress response, which forces potassium out of the blood and into the body's cells, lowering this electrolyte to dangerous levels. On top of this, nifedipine can sometimes lower potassium levels, although this is an uncommon side effect. Glenn's irregular heartbeat could also be a side effect of the blood pressure meds. When blood pressure drops, the heart beats faster to compensate for the diminished force of blood flow in order to better oxygenate the body. This irregular or fast heartbeat is known as tachycardia. His lowered glucose levels also make sense because low blood pressure can cause this. Additionally, a nifedipine overdose can decrease blood sugar levels, and ACE inhibitors like captopril also commonly do this. This is a dangerous collection of symptoms to have, and Glenn was at risk of suffering significant heart problems. For an otherwise healthy 30-year-old, there had to be some strange contributing factors here. After the doctors and nurses stabilized Glenn and prescribed him extra potassium, they released him from the hospital. Glenn returned home and felt better after a few days. His wife was not happy. Over the next week, Kristen continued to complain that the local civilian hospital didn't treat Glenn correctly. She also claimed that the doctors there hadn't taken a sample of Glenn's blood before they discharged him even though they had. Glenn went to another hospital four days later and had his blood tested again. His potassium was back to healthy levels, but still, Kristen was unsatisfied. A week after Glenn's initial hospitalization, Kristen returned home from a shift and announced she had a solution. She would take a sample of Glenn's blood at home, then bring it into the VA medical center to test it. Glenn wasn't sure why his wife was suddenly so interested in his health, but he didn't complain as his wife took two needles out of her work bag and told him to follow her into the bathroom. She wanted to do it herself. Coming up, Kristen Gilbert tries to take care of her husband. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1995, 28-year-old nurse Kristen Gilbert's life was in flux. Her shifts at the hospital were becoming more stressful as the death rate kept creeping higher and higher. At home, her marriage had been falling apart, expedited by her infidelity. She wanted out of her marriage with Glenn Gilbert, but she was too stubborn to divorce him. So she allegedly decided to kill him. Investigators suspect that she poisoned the home-cooked dinners she fed her husband until he was hospitalized. After the doctors sent him home, Kristen claimed she was unhappy with his treatment. She wanted to take his blood herself to test. According to M. William Phelps, author of Perfect Poison, a female serial killer's deadly medicine, Kristen brought her husband into the bathroom where she wrapped a tourniquet around his arm before taking two needles and syringes out of her bag. The larger one was filled with a clear liquid, which Kristen told her husband was saline. She claimed she needed to flush the vein before taking blood. 
Flushing the vein doesn't make sense in this context. Saline, which is basically water with salt, is really only used to flush veins when there are IV catheters involved. These catheters are used to provide access for intravenous medications, and flushing could take place before and after the vein is injected. Flushing before administering medication is done to ensure vein patency, or the openness of a vein, to make sure the medicine will flow easily. Veins with IV catheters can constrict and close down after a while, so it's important to check how accessible and receptive they are before attempting to pass fluids through them. This also clears any residual medication or clotted blood that may be blocking the catheter. Flushing can also be done after giving IV medicine, which ensures that none of it sticks to the catheter wall. But Alistair, Kristen wasn't drawing blood out of a vein, and Glenn didn't have an IV catheter in his arm. She was tricking him here. It's unknown what exactly Kristen was doing to her husband, but she wasn't flushing a vein, that's for sure. Glenn accepted the explanation and allowed his wife to push the needle into his arm and begin injecting the clear liquid. Within moments, he knew something was wrong. His arm felt cold, his fingertips went numb, and his skin turned pale. Losing consciousness, Glenn tried to turn away from his wife, but she held him up and forced him against the wall. Then she ripped off the tourniquet and rushed to get as much of the liquid injected into Glenn's bloodstream as she could. Glenn lost consciousness and collapsed onto the bathroom floor. After a few seconds, he woozily came to and saw his wife hurriedly stuffing the needles back into her bag. When she saw her husband wake up, Kristen told him that he fainted at the sight of the needle. Then. With her husband still lying helplessly on the bathroom floor, she rushed out of the room and headed right back to the VA Medical Center to start her shift. Later, investigators would argue that Kristen had slowly poisoned her husband with her home-cooked meals, leading to his hospitalization. She then allegedly used his illness as an excuse to inject him with an overdose of potassium in an attempt to induce cardiac arrest. Too much potassium, just like too little, can cause major heart problems and even death. As we now know, potassium helps muscles contract, and this includes the heart's major muscles or ventricles. Too much potassium, or hyperkalemia, can cause rapid contraction of the ventricles, which causes the body's blood pressure to skyrocket. This then overworks the heart, which can cause dangerous cardiac arrhythmias or lead to cardiac arrest. The dramatic blood pressure spike can also result in a heart attack or stroke. Injecting potassium is actually a common method of murder because it doesn't show up in an autopsy unless blood is analyzed very soon after death. Potassium chloride, or potassium in its salt form, is even used in lethal injections for executing condemned prisoners by immediately stopping their heart. Kristen Gilbert must have been trying to hurt, if not kill, her husband if she was injecting him with potassium. Whatever Kristen did to her husband, it wasn't enough. Glenn survived, recovered, and confronted her about the incident the next day. But Kristen, as she always did, stuck to her lie. Glenn simply fainted. Somehow, 
Glenn decided to let it go. But the incident hastened the collapse of their marriage. By the end of the month, Kristen finally demanded a divorce and the two had split for good. Kristen left the house and moved into an apartment near her work, now free to pursue her relationship with James Peralt as openly as she liked. After months of anxiety and conflict at home, Kristen Gilbert's personal life was beginning to settle down. On the other hand, her work life was growing tense. The number of unexpected patient deaths during Kristen's shift was over double the amount of deaths in the two other shifts combined. Of course, it's unlikely that was a mere coincidence. Kristen Gilbert was no unlucky angel of death whose high patient death rate was a morbid coincidence. She was a serial murderer. On February 2nd, 1996, Kristen Gilbert made plans to see James Ferrault after work at 10 p.m. Her shift didn't end until midnight, but she could leave when the work was finished. And since she was assigned to the ICU, she only had one patient. Her patient's name was Kenneth Cutting, a 41-year-old Navy veteran suffering from end-stage multiple sclerosis. Cutting had a fever, but was seemingly stable. Still, he'd be staying the night in the ICU. That was inconvenient for Kristen. She had a date at 10 p.m. In order for her to leave her shift, Kenneth Cutting had to go away. So she decided to take care of him the way she'd done with many others. Her modus operandi was simple. Kristen waited until there were no other nurses on the floor, then swiped epinephrine from the medicine cabinet. Then, Kristen entered Cutting's room and, perhaps while claiming she was flushing his IV line with saline, administered a fatal dose of epinephrine. Epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, is a hormone that stimulates the heart and increases blood supply, and it can be life-saving. For example, injectable epinephrine devices called EpiPens are used to treat serious allergic reactions known as anaphylaxis. In high doses, however, epinephrine can be really harmful. If someone was overdosed, all of their bodily functions would severely speed up, and this is because of its effect on the heart. Large doses of epinephrine lowers cardiac output from the rapid heart rate that limits the amount of blood being pumped into the aorta and out into the rest of the body. This tachycardia intensely raises blood pressure and could cause death from arrhythmias, heart attack, and cardiac arrest. A doctor might have a hard time knowing if a cardiac arrest was natural, but there are some circumstances that could look fishy. For example, if there was a global or all-encompassing death of the heart's muscles, a medical examiner might suspect foul play. However, they wouldn't likely assume it was caused by an epinephrine overdose. This could be determined through specific tests that check for epinephrine levels in the blood, heart, urine, and vitreous fluid, which is a clear fluid inside the eyeball. But again, it would be unusual for a doctor to make this assumption without any other relevant insight. Using epinephrine to induce cardiac arrest was a pretty efficient strategy. 
That night, in 1996, the epinephrine quickly sent Kenneth Cutting into cardiac arrest. Kristen diligently coded it in as a medical emergency, but since Kenneth Cutting had been placed under a do-not-resuscitate order, she and the doctors simply watched Cutting die. After Kenneth Cutting was declared dead, Kristen wrote her notes summing up the events of the shift. In the note, she claimed that Cutting had been unconscious since being admitted to the ICU, his fever continually spiked, and antibiotics were ineffective even before his heart rate spiked. None of that was true, and almost all of it could be disproven by other nurses and doctors on staff. But Kristen Gilbert couldn't help herself. Her need to lie and manipulate took over. And now, with her work finished, she could make her date with James Perrault. By early 1996, the other doctors and nurses at the VA Medical Center could no longer ignore the bizarrely high death rate during Kristen Gilbert's shifts or the fact that Kristen called in the vast majority of them. They no longer jokingly called Kristen the angel of death. Their light-hearted attention had turned to grave suspicion. The head doctors now suspected that there was a murderer operating inside the hospital, and they had to find a way to stop her before she killed anyone else. Next time on Medical Murders, Kristen Gilbert fights to keep her crimes from being exposed as the other doctors and nurses at the hospital and the police investigate the deaths on her watch. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Kristen Gilbert, among the many sources we used, we found Perfect Poison, a female serial killer's deadly medicine by M. William Phelps to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trickfordotir, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. 
Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify.